Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. What makes some people so bold and unafraid of change? On this episode, we hear from the risk taker and the person married to the risk taker. My guests today are Real Self verified plastic surgeon Dr. Brandon Clayter and his wife Sarah. Back in 2014, after 10 years in New England, Dr. Clater joined the 45-year-old practice of Dr. Barry Noon in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and he's now the chief of the Division of Plastic Surgery at Mainline Health. You just went through a really challenging period in your career, and I feel like when I met you, you had just gone through a really challenging period in your career, and so... It startled me a little bit that you decided to do something so big again after doing something so big and scary. It was really necessary. Had to be done. Taking over Barry's practice was an enormous challenge in its own right, but his infrastructure and his facility was one that worked for him starting 45 years ago, but it it wasn't going to work for us. You so know, take and, us back right before that move and tell us the story about how the opportunity came to you and how you decided to take it. It actually spanned over almost two years that we were looking for a new location. And the current location or the previous location that we were at was about a block and a half from the hospital, but you had to cross a really busy road there was no easy way to get across. And it was, it was almost a metaphor for where the practice was and where we were trying to go, that I had this, this physical barrier between me and the hospital, or it was a, the practice location was a barrier between where we were and where we were trying to go. And so we knew we needed to move somewhere. And a brand new building got built directly across the street another street from the hospital, a closer street that had a dedicated crosswalk where when you tried to walk across the street, there were flashing lights and the cars had to stop for you. So you almost had a protected, you did have a protected access to the hospital. And once I'd been made chief of plastic surgery, the whole mainline health system, my desire to maintain a close relationship with the hospital was even further amplified. And so as we looked for different places to move to, Sarah and I explored, I don't know, half a dozen places. And each one of them didn't fit the ultimate goal that I had, which was to maintain a closeness to the hospital. So this brand new building that goes up right across the street from the hospital, everything's brand new. We started talking with them about two years ago and they said, well, you know, let's go look at it. We were in that building when it was just girders, you know, when it was concrete floor and everything was open. And we went up to the third floor right where it came off the elevator and we said, boom, this is where we want to be. And they came back to us and said, "Um, no, you're going to be on the second floor down a long hallway past a family medicine practice group and, you know, at the end of a corridor in this really awkward space. And my brother's an architect, so he did all the designs for us. And Sarah worked very closely with Warren, helping figuring out the aesthetic beauty of the space. And at the 11th hour, they came to us and said, here's your contract. And we said, no, we walked away from it. We said, no, we're not doing it. They flew their whole team from Memphis, 
you know, up to see us the next day and came to our office and they were like, okay, wait a minute. Nobody ever does this to us. Nobody ever walks away from us and says, we're not, we're not doing this real estate deal after we've invested all this time. And I said, well, I'll tell you, you know, Right from the beginning, I said, I want to be on the third floor, right where you come off the elevators. It's a beautiful access, beautiful space. And they said, well, that space is reserved for anybody who takes over the whole third floor, you know, 30,000 square feet. And we only wanted 5,000 square feet. And I said, well, we're not doing it. And they said, okay, we want you so badly. You are the kingpin lynch you know, future of this building, you're the future of plastic surgery in this community. We want you this badly. You tell us what you want and you can have it. I want to get your take on this stretch or this season, Sarah. What what were you thinking and feeling during this time? It was stressful only because we knew we needed to move and we liked the space. We liked the proximity to the hospital. The windows were great. We came from you know, where we were was a very dark space and not needed a little updating. And we were looking forward to this, but the second floor was not going to work. And it actually wasn't, wasn't hard at all to step away and say, this just isn't the right opportunity. This isn't what we want. This is not our vision for the future. So it was fine. You know, we figured something else would come along and we would make it work. Yeah, it was really not a negotiating ploy. We just said no. It just it We're, just wasn't you know, right. We would have been better off gutting where we were. Yeah. And starting and, fresh yeah. there. But we would never have gotten past that street, that impassable road that literally I felt like I was gonna get run over every single time I tried to go back to the hospital. And then once we made the decision to actually do it, we again came up another barrier, and that was this is this is the I won't say who it is, but they were the largest provider of healthcare facilities in the country. And so we were neophytes, you know, negotiating with these guys. They, they knew every angle 10 steps ahead of us as we started looking into the build out and things like this. And they came to us with contracts about stuff that we just said, again, absolutely. They were pressuring us because they said, you had to finish this by this, by the quarter of 2018. They... They came to us on New Year's Eve and said, we need the papers signed tonight. Yeah. And I thought that we 31st. were done. We were on with the yeah. with our lawyer and with the realtor and, you know, figuring it all out. Yeah. I had been through this 60-page document, you know, 20 times, yeah. gone over everything. And I left him negotiating, you know, finishing things up and was out with our kids doing something. And I come back and he's like, huh, you might want to sit down. I said, I think I actually said you need you a need glass, glass of wine. Of wine. <laughs> and so he said, uh, we didn't do it. I, I shut it down. And they again came back and said, yeah, you, you, don't do, people don't do this to us. And I said, well, I don't agree with what you've, these terms of this contract that you're, demanding. And I said, so I will walk away from it. So the long and the short is the contract negotiation, it was really, I would say that the most difficult part Yeah, and remains the most kind of the hardest part to, to even think about, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, it was long and arduous and it's never in your favor. If you had to tell someone who was about to go through the same thing, 
like one or two pieces of advice, what would you tell them? Get a really good lawyer and don't be afraid to walk away. Yeah, that's, I could not agree with you more, Sarah. You just nailed it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you had to build it out, right? It's still empty at well, this point. Yeah, it was God. a concrete yeah. floor and girders. Yeah. And that was what we, that's what we walked into. You walk off, you know, up the stairs because the elevators weren't working yet. And that's what was there. And Brand's brother is a phenomenal architect and he understands his brother. We, we must have done 50 iterations they, Sarah and Warren would sit down and do a design and they'd come show it to me and I'd say, no, that's not what I'm looking for. That's not what I like. And they'd have to go back and tear it all up and start all over again. So, you know, I've watched some of these guys give talks about build outs. And the first thing they'll say in there is do not ever use a family member to be your architect. And I would submit to you, I think they're wrong because Sarah and I were able to really personalize this and we were able to really create something that fit us. And and I go into that office and Sarah was joking before we started this saying that the only thing we didn't put in there was a bedroom because I could sleep there. You know, I'm so comfortable in this office. I go in there, I am so comfortable in, in every little aspect of how you move around in it. It has our own operating room. It has offices for the staff. It has examining rooms. It has waiting room. It has an esthetician center. And it, it's, everything is perfectly it, it's appointed. it's filled with light. So, you know, you, you always expect those inner rooms are going to be dark, but, you know, knowing someone, knowing the architect well and having a really good architect matters because he put in transoms in all of the the offices so that the natural light flowed through and it's just lovely. Have you seen the staff's attitudes or the way they approach their jobs change because of the space? Absolutely. They, you know, there's a a great study called the, the Hawthorne effect. And if you're not aware of that, I'll give you a quick history. And that is a researcher in, I think, the 1920s or 30s when it was asked to come into a factory and how can you impact the workers, so it increases their their productivity. And so they, this guy Hawthorne said, well, if you just crank up the lights in there, it'll, they'll be more productive. So they did that and they studied it and the productivity went up 15%. And that would have been the end of the story. But Hawthorne's genius is he said, you know what, I bet if I go back and I tell the staff, if I decrease the light by 20%, you know, that'll make it better because the light's not bright. And it actually increased their productivity again. So the point of this was is that we incorporated and asked our staff for a lot of input as we were going along this. So that they felt part of the process and they felt special. It wasn't like they were being dictated to about what to accept and what they were going to be working in. So, yeah, no, the staff really appreciate the space and they feel special. Yeah, it's a nice place to come to work. It seems like that would really add to the family feeling of working together. We, we see that in our reviews. We see that, and we ask the patients, you know, it's not just about how did Dr. Clater do, but how did the whole staff do? And, and they love commenting and they ask, and like, oh, I really want to say things about the different staff members that I've positively interacted with. And, and I, Eva, you and I have talked about this a lot, that it's, you know, you need to treat your patients well, but you need to treat your staff well as well. And not one better than the other, but you need to acknowledge that they're working their tail off for you. And if they're not emotionally and personally invested in in your goal, you're going to have a hard time achieving that. A wise woman I worked with once said, happy staff equals happy patients. 
Yeah. I think it's that simple. It, it's forced if you don't have it go that way. Um, whereas it flows easily if, if the staff feel appreciated. Sarah, what's your role in managing the practice these days? I do the back end and I can do it either from home or from the office. So all the finances, the marketing, kind of overseeing things that are going on in the office and making sure really that our mission is everyone's on board and, and we're heading in that direction always. Were there any mistakes that you guys made during this process that you want? <laughs> <laughs> mistakes? Oh, many. <laughs> you mean what would we would do differently? Yeah. A few things. You know, just, just last week we were talking about our reception area and we don't have a door out to, for the receptionist to get out easily to the patient. She has to go back around through the nursing station. So I'm going to have it cut out and, and redo it as a quick fix. But, you know, we didn't think we wanted that and we need it. You could probably teach her to jump over the counter. She could. That would really she add a lot to the brand. <laughs> a little ladder goes a long way. But that was one thing. The other thing that we tried, uh, we thought about doing was building it out as a Class C facility from the get-go, and we decided on a Class A. And I don't think it was a mistake at all. I think it was a, it was a good move at the time, but we may at some point add that into the, the equation. Does being a Class C let you do more? Inside the office? Anesthesia. Is that the difference? Yeah, oh, it's okay. just whether or not you do anesthesia versus local. And we've really expanded the envelope. And being able to safely and effectively offer patients an option that can deliver results equivalent or even better than taking someone to the hospital has been big part of this practice over the last three and a half, four years that we've had a quad ASF surgical facility, but it's always been a class A, which is always a local facility, local anesthesia facility. And patients will come in sometimes and say, I don't want to go to the hospital. I want to be able to do this in your, in your office. And so that's why we build out the operating room and we have the flexibility to grow it, to become a class C facility. But we intentionally made it a Class A facility because we had already done that for three years. And so continuing it was very easy, number one. And number two, we were good at it. We had an excellent track record and we wanted to continue it. I thought that it was too many moving parts to bring in a, a operating room, an anesthesia operating room at the same time that we were bringing online a whole new office. And it was, was gonna be a, too big of a radical difference. And so now we're growing into it. And so if you're having, if this podcast is for people who are thinking of starting their own offices, you know, that down the road build out option to increase your overhead expenses after you've got your feet solidly on the ground, I think is important because it's, you know, there are people out there who will allow you to get yourself into a situation where you're so over leveraged in, in it's so difficult to be maneuverable or nimble. And so to approach it in a more measured way is a less arduous route. Makes sense. Was there anything that affected the patients in a way that you didn't expect or didn't anticipate? 
Yeah. Think of anything? Yeah. 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 Google doesn't know where we are. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Google map does not, still does not have our building on it. So if you look at the little drawings, we're there. But if you look at the satellite map, there, our building is not there. It's a grassy. And so I've been meaning to call Google. So if you have any contacts, I'm happy to call them and say, would you please mind flying the drone over our area and retake a picture? Because right now it's just a grassy field. And so, yes, that's been frustrating for patients because when they use different map transportation apps to try and get to the office, it'll bring them in through the back area, which doesn't have any direct access. And they'll get confused and lost and they drive around a little bit and then they're calling and they're like, how do I get into your office? They're like, well, Google has yet to catch up with us. So you've probably written a few phone scripts for how to answer that. It's probably memorized by it the is. staff. It is. Yeah, the staff point. is very good about describing, you know, come in through. It, it's actually very simple. You know, we're directly across from the hospital. Look for the emergency room and look directly across there. So it's a relatively simple thing. But sometimes people will follow their phones without looking up and without being attentive to their surroundings. And next thing they know, they're on the backside of the parking lot. I don't lot. know anyone like that. <laughs> <laughs> the lemmings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, that eventually will get resolved. That'll eventually get resolved. And that's not um, a huge deal. But um, that was one of the frustrations of moving. But know. on a positive, we have an elevator now. We didn't have that before. Mm-hmm. And that makes things easier for patients. And- Post-op patients love walking up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we were doing everything under local anesthesia, it was easy, but we do make everybody go out to the car now in a uh, wheelchair. Does it have a, a separate exit for post-surgical patients? Is there we have a, a back door. There. Yep. yep. That's always nice. Yep. It is nice. They appreciate it. Let's talk about a couple other things. You're okay. working really hard at Instagram. Or what are yeah. you finding is working and not working? Or what is your definition of working? And and that's probably a ongoing question answer in that my definition of working are followers, whereas I have been told that my definition of working should be engagement. But if I understand correctly, the followers are the ones who are presented the data and therefore given the option to engage. So... We try to be educational. I try to teach about different techniques that I do. I try to teach about safety. I try to show patients who are engaging. So I'll ask a patient, are you interested in talking about your recent procedure? And I'm a little disappointed that we don't get more engagement from that because that's where patients have the opportunity to see who I am without having had to drive all the way in and spend half an hour in the office, they can see it ahead of time. So I'd love to see that kind of content get more engagement, Um, whether it creates followers or not. I I guess that maybe it's not important, but I'd like to see that get more traction because I think that that is really what the whole Instagram thing's all about. I, I actually will select people whose accounts are nothing more than billboards for themselves and not follow those people. If they're just, you know, showing me something that is 
so much self-promotion, then I, you know, that's not somebody that I'm necessarily interested in, in looking. I, when I go through my own Instagram feed, I'm looking for stuff that's interesting to me and can help me better teach my my patients about me. I think the the one that I had the greatest engagement in was when I shared the challenge that I had 30 years ago as to whether or not I continue as being a commercial airline pilot or leave that profession and go into medical school. And you know, I, I put the question to people, what would you have done? That blew up my Instagram, blew it up. I couldn't believe how many people wrote back, not like, hey, awesome, smiley face, but they wrote back, you know, voluminous responses about their own personal journeys and how heartbreaking or heart-wrenching it can be to have to make a decision to go down one career path versus the other and, and which one is more fulfilling. I think there's a really important takeaway there. And what I have tried to distill that my advice about Instagram down to is you want the person who's looking to say, what's that? And mm. stop. Mm-hmm. That is the, the behavior we're trying to get with our content there. So if they can see what it is and don't need to stop, they're just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. So everything needs to get to that. What's that? And so one great example is from a, another a facial plastic surgeon I know who almost does only rhinoplasty. He started putting rhinoplasty reveal videos on his Instagram. And now his whole account is just reveals because there's something to stop and look at. And everybody wants to see the reaction of the patient when they see their new nose for the first time. I know who you're talking about. I don't know if you want to give a shout out to somebody like that, but he's an awesome guy. And uh, I've, I've, I've been over in France with him and spent time with him. And he's, it's fantastic. And he's really, he's engaging and he does a lot of other things that are great too. He'll do different you know, personal things where he gets popped questions, random questions, and he just answers them. We're both talking about Bill Portuguese. Oh, right? no, I'm talking about Steve Dian. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about Bill. Well, I'm giving and, a shout out to Steve. But the thing in co- <laughs> that sorry, you all three sorry, have Bill. in common is that you're great risk takers and you're not yeah. afraid to try stuff and, and throw that spaghetti at the wall. And that's what it's all about in marketing, especially is you have to put yourself out there and try well, and, and I'm glad you brought up that term risk takers because, you know, I, my entire life, I've driven motorcycles. I was riding airplanes. I was a skydiver. I was a rock climber, an ice climber. and did a lot of things that you may call risky behavior. Now, I don't do very many of those anymore because I've really settled into a particular career and I've you know, insurance things that say, are you doing these things? And I, well, I've actually given them up, so I'm not doing them anymore. But that was very much how I grew up. And people would be critical of me and say, well, how can you be, in their opinion, reckless? And um, my grandmother was a pilot back in the 30s. And so all my brothers and I were all pilots. And so we never looked at it as being risky or overly exposed. We looked at it as taking on challenges with what we called calculated risks. And I would submit to you that everybody does that every day. Getting in a car is a calculated risk, but it's so mundane that it's, it's not looked at as a risk, but more people certainly have bad outcomes driving cars than in ever in an airplane. Now, certainly the numbers are higher, but 
it requires a level of cerebral integrity and cerebral exercise that lends itself very well to my current profession in medicine and in a lot of ways makes me feel very at home in the operating room just like I felt at home in a cockpit of an airplane. So I don't consider it risky. I consider it smart. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.